Welcome back to Behind the Wings, a podcast produced by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in Denver, Colorado. We've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. Hey, it's time to go Behind the Wings. Well, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but we've made it, folks, to episode 20 and the end of season two. You know, I've said it before, I'll say it again. We are so glad to have you along for the ride. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, give us a rating. It's the best way for new people to discover the show, and you know how much we appreciate that. All right, on today's episode, we're going to explore the question, what is it about Colorado? Now, before you get started, (laughs) there's a lot of possible answers with a question like that, right? Is it that we get an average of 300 days of sunshine a year, or that Denver lays claim to the invention of the cheeseburger in 1935? Certainly intriguing, but come on, we're talking about air and space here. So, John, let him know, what do we have for folks today in this mile-high episode? Well, there I go. I learned something. I didn't know we would lay claim to the invitation of the cheeseburger in the yeah, event. Huh? Yeah, it's crazy. Well, anyway, uh, we have a lot to talk about, and uh, it's one of those things where we'll be exploring the impact that Coloradans have had across nearly every aspect of aviation and space exploration. You know, our museum is dedicated to educate and inspire and excite people of all ages about aviation and space. So, this is compelling for all of us here personally. We have a new exhibit here at the museum called Pioneers, Pace Setters, and Possibilities that shines a spotlight on some of these stories. And on today's show, we'll take a closer look at the excitement and the adventure of flight in Colorado. All right. Colorado produced the first American flying ace, the first civilian helicopter ambulance service, and the first female airline pilot. We've grown astronauts and executives, entrepreneurs and visionaries, and the aerospace industry has brought hundreds of thousands of jobs and hundreds of billions of dollars into our state's economy. In fact, Colorado has the nation's second largest aerospace economy, and aviation is the fastest growing industry segment in the Denver area. Wings Over the Rockies curator Chuck Stout joins us today. Chuck learned to fly as a teenager and has been an active pilot ever since, but ironically, he's never flown for a living. However, over the course of his career, he has helped to design, build, and test satellites, helped to write and illustrate dozens of books and online courses to train pilots, created scores of museum exhibits, and given hundreds of presentations on science and aerospace topics. There is a lot to learn in this episode, from pioneers to pace setters and the possibilities of what's still to come in the future. So stick with us. This one is going to be cool. Let's get started. Chuck Stout, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. To start off, you're the curator at Wings Over the Rockies, so please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about that new exhibit, Pioneers, Pace Setters, Possibilities. Uh, What is the story you brought together for this new exhibit, which, by the way, is now open. So if you're in Denver, check it out. Tell us about it, Chuck. Yeah, Colorado is the aerospace frontier uh, or is on the aerospace frontier. In this exhibit, we try to kind of shine a spotlight on some of the uh, many, many, many uh, stories of Colorado entrepreneurs and pioneers and people who have advanced uh, aerospace in one way or another. 
we had a lot more than we could fit into the exhibit, but we also wanted to pull some of our lesser seen objects and artifacts out and get them in front of the public. Some of these things have never been seen by the public before. We haven't ever put them on display before this exhibit. Well, Chuck, you know, it's uh, always interesting to hear your perspective on things and particularly with this exhibit, but let's start with the big picture. You know, I know you and I have had many conversations about how Colorado is the number one per capita employed aerospace state in the nation. Now, the only one that beats us on total numbers is like California as a case in point. But when we talk about uh, aerospace, the major economic driver that it is in Colorado, and also the fact that Colorado continues to establish itself as a leader. We call it aerospace frontier. You know, you know, even Colorado could be the number one aerospace state in the nation at some point. So, you know, what are your some thoughts, big picture wise? Big picture, we're in the catbird seat. This is really a, a wonderful place for the Denver area and Colorado to be uh, on the aerospace frontier. But it wasn't necessarily always this way. Uh, back in the 1920s, Denver was in danger of becoming a an aeronautical backwater. The uh, first transcontinental airway had just opened up and it went through Cheyenne. And the reason wasn't because Cheyenne was a bigger or better city than Denver, it's because of those 14,000 foot peaks straight west from here. The airplanes in those days couldn't get up above them. The airplanes didn't have oxygen for the pilots. So they took it through Cheyenne so they had less terrain to deal with. Now, back then, some visionaries in Denver got together and said, how are we going to put Denver on the map? And they came up with the idea of building the best airport between St. Louis and San Francisco. And that became Denver Municipal Airport, which then grew into Stapleton International. Yeah, that's a great way. You know, just because of geography, it didn't always start that way. But now, of course, we got these wonderful mountains as go forward. So, Rick, what, do you, what are your thoughts? Well, here's what I know so far. The exhibit introduces visitors to some of the people and organizations who have advanced aviation technology, uh, air travel, space science over the years. You know, folks, names we're familiar with maybe Emily Howell Warner, Jeppesen, Scott Carpenter, to name a few. And we're, we're going to do a bit of a rapid fire round as we go through each segment today. But Chuck, tell us a bit about how you think about pioneers. What role do they play in aviation? Well, I, I have to point out that uh, pioneers, pace setters, and possibilities are not really separate categories. Uh, many pioneers are also pace setters, and there are pace setters who can be pioneers, and people who see possibilities can also be pioneers or pace setters. But some stand out as undeniable pioneers. And uh, you mentioned Emily Howell Warner. Uh, her primary attributes were graciousness and persistence. She kept it up year after year after year trying to get an interview for an airline job and collected, you know, reams of, of rejection letters, but she kept at it and she never became angry, lost her temper and so forth. But she eventually got an interview and demonstrated that she was as good, if not better than the men that they were hiring. And uh, persistence often pays off. Sure. Yeah. Emily, for instance, uh, uh, becomes the first female airline captain in 1976. Uh, we mentioned Jeff Jepson, whose handwritten notes in a 10-cent notebook grew into the aeronautical charting industry. 
Scott Carpenter, the first person ever to eat solid food in space and the second American to orbit the Earth. I mean, talk about uh, pay setters, right? What a collection just there to start with. Yeah, we might throw Marlon Green in there, too. He was the uh, first uh, black pilot hired by a, a major airline, and that was Continental Airlines. He wasn't from Colorado, and uh, he had been a military pilot, had flown transports and large jets for the military for years, but he couldn't get an interview uh, as an airline pilot because there, in those days, were on the job applications a place for you to paste a picture of yourself. And eventually he hit upon the idea of, I'm just gonna leave that blank. And uh, he got an interview. There were four or six people interviewed with him. He was better qualified than all of them. All of them got hired and he didn't. He took it to court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court and Continental was compelled to hire him. But to his great credit, he didn't let that bog him down. And he was soon a captain and made history. Wow. Well, every field has pioneers and in aviation, often they are pushing limits that have been set by someone else. And that might be speed, altitude, uh, endurance, things like that. But it also might mean breaking a glass ceiling or breaking a, a racial or ethnic barrier. Some people got ahead, not because they were smart or talented or wealthy, but just because they wanted it badly enough. And aviation and space exploration are two things that are an amazingly attractive carrot for people to uh, uh, aspire to. And they find that they can do things that they never thought they could do just because they, they really want that opportunity. You know, when we talked about some of those pioneers featured in the exhibit, but it's important to recognize for our audience that you don't have to be the first. You don't have to be the biggest or the most successful to make a significant contribution. Some people will make it later on in their lives. The exhibit also includes people who broke down gender and racial barriers to achieve their, their dreams. Tell us about the, uh, some of these pioneers uh, and pace setters. How about Jessica Watkins? Oh, Jessica Watkins, Colorado astronaut, first black woman to work on the International Space Station. It's really, to me, a surprise that it took that long for a black woman to end up working on, on the ISS. You know, then we move to, let's say, a doctor, a Serena Allen Chancellor, daughter of a Cuban immigrant. What's her story? Well, uh, she grew up in Fort Collins and uh, went to high school there. Uh, she became an engineer, became a medical doctor, uh, and as she was setting records and, and breaking uh, barriers as a medical doctor, she decided that being an astronaut would be a nice thing to do. And so she uh, became an astronaut and she spent more than six months in space doing biological research on the International Space Station. And one of the things that I think is really important, Dr. Anand Chancellor still donates her time to work in clinics for underserved populations. Uh, she gives freely of herself and her talent to make life better for people who are not as privileged as she is. Well, let's talk about, let's say, the recession in 2008. Rick Adams, what, what was his significant kind of lead in to be a pioneer and a pace-sitter? Well, Rick Adams was already a serial entrepreneur. He had started several different companies. He'd made a bundle 
uh, with software and I, I think as a, a stock trader. Uh, so he had some, some capital to play with and decided that what he really needed was an airplane that was better than the Cessna that he was flying for his, uh, his business. And he flew uh, a fairly unique airplane, a Cessna Skymaster, which has two engines, but one's on the front and one's on the back instead of being out on the wings. And he said, gosh, this is a really good idea, but let's bring it into the, the late 20th century. So he designed or paid Bert Rutan to design the uh, Atom uh, M309, which became the Atom 500. And it is a centerline thrust airplane similar to the Cessna Skymaster. But Rick Adam was cut down by the 2008 recession, as were many aerospace entrepreneurs, uh, two or three of them that we feature in the exhibit. When, you know, they say a rising tide lifts all the boats. Well, when the tide goes out, a lot of boats uh, end up on the bottom. And that's what happened to him. He already had a whole order book full of, I think, about 150 uh, orders for the Atom 500. They were already working on a jet-powered version, and the bottom dropped out of the economy, and all of that funding dried up, and he was kind of out of luck. You know, when our kids come through our museum, they see where you got a prop on the front and they got a prop on the back. It's always kind of compelling. One's a pusher and one's a puller, so it's pretty good. You know, that's a good example of a pace setter. Uh, centerline thrust airplanes were invented in World War II, and then reinvented in the 1960s by Cessna, and then Rick Adam reinvented them again uh, towards the end of the 20th century. So he wasn't really inventing anything new, but he was advancing the field and setting the pace by raising it up a notch. You know, one of the exciting things about people who are innovative sometimes is just taking commonly known ideas and combining them in a very unique way that nobody's ever thought about before. But like the first guy who ever flew a jet, the first American ever flew a jet. Talk about that one. Well, you're talking about Bob Stanley. He became an airplane designer back in the 1930s. He was the first person to design an airplane with a V-tail. Uh, you've seen V-tailed airplanes like the Beechcraft Bonanza. He was the first guy that did that. He designed his own all-metal sailplane with a V-tail while he was serving in the military. And uh, that's hanging in the National Air and Space Museum now. Then he became both an aerospace aeronautical engineer and a test pilot and ended up working for Bell Aircraft at the time that they were developing America's first jet-powered fighter plane, the XP-59. And he was the first American to fly an American-made jet, that P-59 era comet. And that's another example of how progress works. Just because the Bell P-59 was the first didn't make it a very good airplane. It was kind of a dog. It was slow, couldn't carry much, but it led to all the jet fighters that are in the air today. And Bob Stanley finished his stint uh, at Bell Aircraft designing the X-1, which was the first airplane to break the sound barrier. Yeah, and the X-2, which was the first airplane to exceed Mach 3. So then he started his own company and decided to move it to Colorado. And his focus was on saving lives, uh, getting people out of airplanes that had been disabled. He worked with ejection seats, escape systems, 
And he was always on the cutting edge because as airplanes advance in their capabilities, the life-saving systems have to keep up with that. Yeah, and we get into possibilities now a little bit, Chuck, because we get to the third P here. Uh, there are also those who see new possibilities and push existing concepts and technologies in new directions as we look forward at what's coming, new launch vehicles, electric aircraft. So let's talk about some of the cutting edge in aerospace. You know, aerospace is right on the cusp of many changes. Uh, there's pressure to be carbon neutral or carbon negative. Uh, there's the uh, blossoming of commercial space endeavors. Uh, there are just so many uh, wonderful things on the horizon. And we're lucky enough here in Colorado that we're kind of the, uh, the incubator for a lot of these ideas. So how about we start with Martin's Titan family of launch vehicles? Started as a successful nuclear deterrent, right? And has grown into something much more. Yes. The Glen L. Martin Company was founded in Maryland way back in the 1910s uh, by Glenn Martin, who was a competitor with the Wright brothers in early aviation. And when the Cold War was heating up and they needed a, a second ballistic missile, Martin won the contract, but they wanted to build a new factory for it. And they wanted it as far from the coastlines as possible. So they ended up settling in, in Denver, actually, out southwest of uh, the Denver area in Waterton. So they built this wonderful factory. They built the next generation of intercontinental ballistic missile, the Titan I out here, and expanded it into the Titan II, which became the launch vehicle for our two-person Gemini human-crewed spacecraft that was our second step on the three steps to the moon. And then they expanded that again into the Titan III and IV, which were heavy launch vehicles that put space probes out into the solar system, landed uh, landers on Mars, and so forth. So they grew from just a single product in 1959 to a whole plethora of space probes, satellites, defense projects, and launch vehicles. And then we transitioned from that, I guess, you know, kind of we combine a lot of these things we've talked about today, but electric aircraft, right, that can be fueled by sunshine. Um, boy, talk about a, a whole new world of possibilities. Yeah, that's something that is uh, blossoming several different gardens right now. There's lots of electric airplanes hitting the market. And right now they're kind of limited by existing battery technology. It's basically the same kind of batteries that you'd find in a, a Prius or a Tesla. But still, that is a viable energy source. One of the nice things about electric power for airplanes is that it's so simple. Uh, there's basically one moving part as opposed to hundreds or thousands of moving parts in a, a piston engine or a jet engine. So right away, that cuts the maintenance way down. A lot of electric aircraft don't have any maintenance at all for several years at a time. And this is all brand new territory for the FAA. They don't know how to test or certify airplanes like that. So they're having to write the rules as they go along. But once you have an electric powered airplane, if you put solar panels on the top of your flight school, you can plug in the airplanes, have some flying while some are being charged, and your fuel cost drops to zero uh, as long as the sun's shining, which is gonna be several billion years. So it's free fuel, it's low maintenance, it's quieter than a a gasoline-powered airplane, 
So it's got a lot of advantages going for it in addition to being zero emissions. It is a, a technological challenge and the, the challenge is being addressed uh, in, by several different companies. But for example, take that Cessna 172. That is normally the, the standard garden variety family airplane, four seats, uh, 800 mile range, uh, several hours of time in the air. But when you power it with batteries, suddenly it becomes a two seat airplane with about a two hour range, which is fine for a trainer. You know, all you need is room for a flight instructor and a student, and two hours is enough for a, a medium length uh, cross country training exercise. But it's not really something that that newly minted pilot is going to be able to turn around and buy. Not only is it not very practical for those family vacations, it's also going to be several times the cost of a gasoline powered Cessna 172. But yeah, the problems are being solved. They're not solved yet, but that's how progress is made. It's work at it and work at it, and work at it. Sometimes there's a breakthrough. Sometimes the uh, progress is just evolutionary rather than revolutionary. And what we also see a lot of times is a, a build on what's done before, you know. So in this exhibit, you know, we learn about a lot of things in so far as ourselves, along with the 70 plus aircraft in our historic museum here that was built in 1941. But we also have a second site then at Centennial Airport. And so, Chuck, you know, anything else you'd like to mention as we get to the end here? Well, uh, the exhibit focuses on people and their stories, but I also want to emphasize that visitors who have been to our museum several times in the past will see things that they've never seen before, including the cockpit procedures trainer from the ATG Javelin two-seat business jet that was also cut down by the uh, recession in 2008. There are a number of things that you'll notice that you've never seen, even if you've been to the museum several times. Well, you know, we have a lot to be able to talk about, and these are exciting times. And there are other stories and people we wish we had time to be able to include, but we'll be working those stories in future exhibits as, as Chuck, our curator, uh, builds them out. And well, it's been a wonderful experience to talk about specifically Colorado. So, Chuck, thank you very much. Rick, want to close it out? Yeah, and I, I would just add in conclusion, and, and Chuck, thank you very much for the insight to the exhibit. I can't wait to get in there and see it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's people, right? It's, it's individuals who are driven to accomplish something remarkable, have a passion for something remarkable, uh, you know, pace setters, possibilities. All of that happens with those great pioneers at the start of all of this. And whether it's the high altitude here or all the days of sunshine or something, we grow some pretty remarkable pioneers here in Colorado. Well, thanks, Rick. And it's been a pleasure. And that is something that I really want to emphasize. We try to convey it in the exhibit also. These people who do marvelous, wonderful, amazing things are basically just like you and me. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. They turn out to be very uh, normal people who just happen to do an extraordinary thing. Uh, often it takes an awful lot of work, but uh, with the right drive and the right tools, people can accomplish amazing things. Absolutely. And that's why we'll end the session saying that maybe 
Colorado being the number one per capita for employed aerospace employees in the country. The only one beats us is California. We're mile high closer to space. Everybody kind of jokes about that, but the truth of the matter is that saves us millions of dollars getting into space. This is in a unique state for young people to come to if they are interested in aviation and space. So, Chuck, in uh, closing, you know, pioneers, pace setters, and possibilities are not really separate categories. I mean, many pioneers are also pace setters and vice versa. You've mentioned that. And people who are seeing possibilities can also be pioneers or pace setters. So what is it that you want to mention as to get us to the end here and, and leave this podcast with some exciting thoughts? Well, this really is a great time to be alive and a great time to be working in aerospace. Uh, if there are young people listening, this is a ticket to a wonderful career. Uh, there are so many opportunities and so much that's going on. And it just blows me away uh, the things that the next generation is going to be able to do. Come to see this exhibit and be inspired. Uh, it's kind of like Dr. Robert Goddard said. He was the first person ever to build a liquid-fueled rocket. He said, it's difficult to say what is impossible, for the dream of yesterday is the hope of today and the reality of tomorrow. Well, thanks, Chuck. You know, it's a great way to end this, this podcast. So much to see. Please come out to the museum. We've got so much to offer, and this is just touching just a little bit of the peripheral edges of this amazing topic. So thanks again, Chuck, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you, Chuck Stout, for joining us. Man, that was that that was cool. That was a fun show. You know, I, I can't. I don't know if there's any one thing I liked more about that than that. I think I, I think the conversation about electric flight is is fascinating to me with where it's going now. Uh, what about you, John? What'd you take away from today? Well, you know, Chuck's like a walking encyclopedia for Colorado. Yeah. It's just always amazing to hear his stories and the way he brings the reality of the past to the present and even focusing on the future. So I was compelled by some of the unique stories that are to Colorado. And yeah. I've learned a lot over these many years, and it always fascinates me. We do have incredible innovators in Colorado. It is a place to be. It is a laboratory of new ideas and new excitements and new boundaries and breaking the glass. And I think we've demonstrated that with these number of the stories that we have with real people who have lived in Colorado and have made a difference in this country of ours. So I think that's one of the things we should be all be proud of as Coloradans. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good, good points. Well, that is going to do it, folks, for episode 20 and season two of the Behind the Wings podcast. I can't thank you enough for listening. Be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access the show notes. Now, we're going to be taking a short break as we wrap up season two, but stick around. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Behind the Wings podcast. Head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. It helps a lot. We appreciate it. You know, thank you for me, John. I'm sure thank you from you as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time right here on Behind the Wings. <laughs>